Welcome to season two of the U.S.-China Nexus, taking stock of a global China. China today is a superpower anew, and its footprint is ever expanding. This season, each episode features a conversation with experts who unpack China's relations with different parts of the world. I'm your host, Eleanor M. Albert, a research fellow with the initiative. Today, our guest is Yuan Wang. Yuan Wang is an assistant professor of international relations at Duke Quinshan University in China's Jiangsu province. Your research interests include global China, African politics, and the comparative political economy of development. Your book project investigates why Chinese financed and constructed projects develop into starkly different trajectories in different African countries. Before Duke Quinshan, you were a fellow at the Columbia Harvard China and the World Program and at Columbia's Weatherhead East Asian Institute. You also previously served in the China office of the United Nations Development Program and at the Sino-Africa Center of Excellence Foundation in its Nairobi office. Yuan, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. To start, I wanted to ask you how you entered this research space and how did Africa become the place that you wanted to focus on in terms of China's relationship to it? How did I enter this space? It's a good question. I started the journey with an interesting development. So after Kennedy School, I bought a one-way ticket to land in Kenya and decided to stay there for two years without any idea what I want to do with my life afterwards. But random decisions in our early 20s could significantly influence our life, especially the career. It was back in 2013 and 14, and I was in Kenya. I saw many construction going on. And on the gate of these construction sites, they wrote China Jordan Bridge Corporation. So I grew close to the Chinese circle in Nairobi, the capital city of Kenya. And when hanging out with those Chinese entrepreneurs, state-owned or private company managers, engineers, youth volunteers, I listened to many stories of the Chinese in Africa, and eventually I became one of them. When I finally decided to pursue an academic path, my research is mostly inspired by the stories of my friends and myself. That's fantastic and so interesting. You were saying how you were plugged into the Chinese community in Africa, but I'm actually curious to look at the flip side of it too. How is China's clearly growing regional presence viewed across countries in Africa? Who are China's most prominent African partners? How do Africans perceive China's presence? We can actually look at this question from the most recent results of the Afrobarometer and my own experience talking with people in Africa. So according to the most recent round of Afrobarometer's national surveys, which covers 34 countries, it was released in 2021. It shows that Africa actually holds positive views of Chinese influence on the continent. So... As I remember, it's 60% of respondents said that China's influence is either somewhat or very positive. But compared with the data from the previous round, which is around 2014 to 2015, African perceptions of Beijing's influence has declined a little. And China still remains second to the United States as the preferred development model for Africans. So that shows a lot. Although majority of those who are aware of Chinese loans and development assistance to their countries are concerned about heavily indebted to China. My own experience talking with people in several African countries when I was doing field work or living there showed that their perception really depends on where they live, whether their lives were positively affected or negatively affected by Chinese sponsored projects or Chinese people. The local resident whose land was confiscated for the construction of a road or a railway sponsored by the Chinese 
can hardly have a positive view towards the Chinese, even though the land acquisition was not necessarily the responsible of the Chinese company. But those who could enjoy the newly built airport or standard gauge railway by Chinese companies to travel, or some of those who had good experience working in the Chinese company, tend to think much positively about China. And interestingly, when I walk on the street of Nairobi, I was frequently called Muzungu, a Swahili word for white people. But my white friends walking on the street of Addis Ababa in the neighboring Ethiopia were sometimes called China. As for the important partners of China, if you uh, look at the BU Chinese loans to Africa data, then top borrowers have been Angola, Ethiopia, Zambia, Kenya, and Nigeria. The database also shows over the past two, two decades, at least 80% of these Chinese loans financed economic and social infrastructure projects mostly transport, power, telecom, and water. In terms of investment, this South Africa, Zambia, and DR Congo attracted the largest Chinese FDI in stock, according to the data. It seems to be that trade and investment, focus on development, seems to be the thing that really binds China the most to the continent. But is there variation? Africa is a very large continent. There are lots of different countries. Some are landlocked, some are on the coasts of different oceans, and some of them have different resources. There is always a lot of talk about resource acquisition being part of China's pursuit of relationships there. What are the policy areas that really bind China to it? And then are there wedge issues? Are there issues that create problems or are politically charged? Well, wedge issues change with time and differ across countries. As you said, there is such a big continent of 54 countries. At some point, it was China's motivation to Africa, whether it was win-win or China's win, as obtaining natural resources and exporting overcapacity at the sacrifice of African development. Then the social environmental impacts of China-sponsored projects was hotly debated. And China's peacekeeping and security issue arise when there's a conflict on the continent and there's a request for China to play a bigger role in, in these activities. And recently, it's a debt sustainability issue that draws people's attention. On a related note, in terms of anxiety, there's a lot of talk about how Belt and Road and China's practice of loans, as far as backing a lot of these projects, there's this term of debt trap diplomacy accusations and concepts of neo-mercantilism. But China's attention to Africa is also not entirely new. The Tanzam Railway dates way back to the 70s, and there's been an update of that. How much of the narrative of China as a malign or bad actor, a donor perhaps not in good faith, is, is that a reality in Africa? Well, it's, it's probably difficult to tell if a country is a benevolent or malign actor. Just like it's difficult to tell if a person is good or bad. In majority of the cases, there is not a black or white answer even to the question of whether China is helping or not helping Africa. But gray is probably closer to the reality. So infrastructure development, employment opportunity, or at least some levels of technology and knowledge transfer seems to be the commonly agreed upon areas where China contributes to host country development in Africa. But even these ones are not without contestation. And the more contested areas, as mentioned before, social environmental impacts, labor welfare, racism, corruption, transparency, community engagement, etc. And oftentimes these issues were politicized at host countries, domestic uh, level and international level. I want to also highlight there have been successes of projects, right? 
Could you provide perhaps an example or two of projects that have been successful in terms of completion, relationship with host country and communities, and then perhaps an example where a particular project has been politicized, whether it was for environmental reasons or, or social issue reasons? That can be from one project, actually, both sides. It depends on how you perceive it. Going back to my very familiar case of the standard gauge railway that China constructed in connecting Nairobi to the port city of Mombasa in Kenya, it was heavily politicized. During the construction, there were a lot of issues arise, such as the social environmental impact, whether the environmental impact assessments were properly done. How was this project initiated in the first place? Were there corruption and were there proper tendering process? And all these issues became spotlight before the 2017 presidential election, when the incumbent President Uhuru Kenyatta wanted to capitalize here as his campaign capital, while the opposition criticized the railway as a way to criticize the government. And then local grievances like land acquisition issues and environmental issues were politicized by oppositions as a way to attack the incumbent who's trying to seek a second term. But in the meantime, the construction of the railway took only two and a half years. Originally, it was contracted to complete within five years. And then it was good quality and shortened the travel time from the capital city to the Mombasa port to four hours. And the ticket was, the passenger ticket was so in shortage that we have to book three days in advance to go to Mombasa or coming back. And it was very popular at, at one point. It was much cheaper than the flight and much safer than the road, which was called Death Road, because of the high casualty car accident caused between Mombasa and Nairobi. So it did bring people some benefits. Beyond the bilateral level, China has a lot of different relationships with different countries. And I'm curious what role multilateral platforms have had. Forum on Africa-China Cooperation has been around for two decades now, and it is lauded as this platform for dialogue. And also, I know China has valued its relationship with the African Union. What role do these entities play in China's overall approach to its engagement with Africa. I'm actually recently collaborating on a paper with a Japanese colleague on the comparison of TCAT, the Tokyo International Conference on African Development, and FOCAC as a role of African agency in their respective origin and convergence. So FOCAC indeed provides a concentrated opportunity for Chinese top leaders to meet with multiple African leaders during FOCAC meetings or summits. And meeting bilaterally, there are very limited times that Chinese top leader could visit Africa and receiving Africa leaders to China. FOCA provides a very nice platform that this can be done in a short period of time. It itself also became a brand for both for subsequent Africa Plus One and for China Plus One platform. So not only limited to China in Africa, but also China with uh, European countries. So the great success of FOCAC Beijing Summit in 2006 especially was greatly discussed in Japan and subsequently TCAD also followed FOCAC and changed from hosting every five years to annually and from hosting only in Tokyo to hosting alternatively in Tokyo and Africa. This proposal to change, however, was made by Africans to Tokyo. So you can see how Africans play an agency in these changes. 
The great success of FOCAC also served as a model for Chinese multilateral diplomacy for the subsequent China's 16 plus one platform in 2012, made up of Central and Eastern European countries, China Arab state summits. For this, FOCAC also served as a reference to draw lessons from. I do see the role of African Union in FOCAC, or at least they try to play a role. But FOCAC was hesitant to have African Union as a co-organizer, which African Union strongly proposed. However, in TCAD, the Japanese forum, African Union was a co-organizer and played a significant role, although it's not a lesson that China learned from TCAD. But there were also a trend that my Japanese colleague observed before African Union joined TCAD. Individual African countries' voice were stronger. But now, because there is this union that was supposed to speak for the whole continent, the individual Africans' voice in the forum could be softened a little. Interesting. I want to talk a little bit about the role that the U.S.'s relationship has in kind of a triangular sense. There used to be much more of a focus in American foreign policy towards development. That's been kind of sunsetted for a while. But I know that there have been efforts to re-engage. And I'm curious, the differences in the American approach to engaging with Africa compared to China's? A lot of differences, although I would say uh, two things. The first is the concentration of areas. So in terms of aid and China-sponsored projects, it's still mainly infrastructure-based. And that was something that multilateral donors, including the U.S., has not been focusing on for a long period. It was more of good governance, soft side of things for a long time. But although recently there has this trend of also doing business and mutual equality and less emphasis on aid hierarchy also going on, and that is not only in the States, but also in Japan as well. That's one thing. The other is how influential U.S. media versus Chinese media. And that, I think, could play a significant role in how the activities were perceived. So Xinhua News Agency and CCTV or CGTN or China Daily were not as influential as Reuters or VOA or New York Times or Washington Post. There could be a market for anxiety towards China in the States. So these added together make it a little bit difficult to, how should I frame it? The media narrative certainly has framed Chinese activities in particular ways. Is that something that is influential in African publics? Oh, yeah. A lot of African journalists were trained in Western curricula, at least if they were not trained in Western countries, especially those influential media in more democratic countries like Kenya, uh, Zambia, etc. That's super interesting. To wrap things up in the short to medium term, if you were watching just one particular trend in the development space in China-Africa relations, what would it be and why? African agency, I would say. Although my last field trip to Africa was more than three years ago, so I can't say that I have an imminent sense of what's a trend on China-African relations on the ground, but there are increasing number of African plus one platforms in addition to FOCAC and TCAD. 
there are Turkey, Korean, India, Indonesia, Middle East, France, and UK and Russia African summits, and recently Ukraine proposing also, or have already hosted or plan to host an African Plus One summit. And Photoshop is solid. A scholar based at Oxford had an excellent paper on this, showing the African agency through summit diplomacy, and I fully agree. Invitation to these summits provide African actors with the opportunity to exercise their agency, but whether their agency can be realized or not is not guaranteed. So, in other words, agency is an opportunity, but whether and how countries take this opportunity differ. What are some of those differences? In the paper, we were looking at South Africa was very vocal in terms of their participation, pursuing their own and regional needs. Inserting their own regional needs into FOCAC. The agenda setting. Yeah. But at the same time, there are countries that shared with me by a retired ambassador that the person who was invited to travel to FOCAC was just not interested at all. The Chinese ambassador had to constantly ask him, did you bring the documents? He said, okay, I will bring. And then on the day, he forgot. So the Chinese ambassador said, Okay, I brought one for you. And then he was late. So the ambassador had to stop the plan for him to be able to catch on the plan to go to Volkak. He was just so reluctant. There's not an equal appetite in engaging in Volkak. It varies. Yeah. And also there were somehow smaller countries like Benin and Madagascar were the ones that proposed the initiation of Volkak in the very beginning. Was that an attempt to raise their profiles to be seen on equal footing with other big power players? Mm-hmm. In the region, at least. Our show is created and produced by Eleanor M. Albert. Our music is from Universal Production Music. Special thanks to Toya Ulan, Sherman Tong, and Amy Vandervliet. For more initiative programming, videos, and links to our events, visit our website at uschinadialogue.georgetown.edu. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your preferred podcast platform.